the outcome measure in the study focused on PTSD, but they measured some other things also that were not the focus of the treatment. Right here's the carving people up and compartmentalizing them. So everybody in the study had a diagnosis of PTSD, but they also measured depression scores and every single person in the study was clinically depressed before they started treatment and every single one of those people was clinically depressed after they finished treatment you know let's put this in context so two out of three people who got this treatment still had ptsd when they were done mm -hmm. and a hundred percent of the people a hundred percent of the people are still clinically depressed so you know they're not well the patients aren't well by their criteria for you know what being well would be for them you know this is a researcher's very you know artificial and self-serving definition of what progress in therapy looks like i have been late you know really big time big time big time i went on a date last week how'd it go it was good going out again i don't know why not I haven't called it. You're always doing an amateur. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry about me. I know what I'm doing. Yeah, but this girl's like, you know, beautiful. She's smart. She's fun. She's different from most of the girls I've been with. So call her up, Romeo. Why? So I can realize she's not that smart, that she's fucking boring. You know I mean? You know, this girl's like fucking perfect right now. I don't want to ruin that. Maybe you're perfect right now. Maybe you don't want to ruin that. I think that's a super philosophy, Bill. That way you can go through your entire life without ever having to really know anybody. I'm John Totten, and this is Between Us. Hello. Hi, John. Can you hear me? Hi. How are you? I'm good. Good to see you in person. Hang with me while I use a football analogy to set up why today's guest is important. In the world of American football, more like the world of American football analysis, there's an age-old struggle. There's a struggle between the data analysts who crunch the numbers and between what we call the football guys, the coaches and executives who've done the actual game. They've played hundreds of games and run thousands of plays. Both sides think they know what needs to happen in order to perform better, and both sides have much to learn from the other. But in the sports world, these data analysts, these numbers people, they hold little power. And here's where you have to hang with me. Now reverse the whole hierarchy. Imagine a world where the data people have all the power and the people who do it day in and day out have none. That is applied psychology. Sure, those of us who are the therapy guys and therapy gals do what we do day in and day out without much specific oversight to what we say in our sessions. But we spend much of our in-between time writing notes and treatment plans and diagnoses that justify the nature of our work to insurance companies that listen to the data people. The therapy guys and therapy gals end up learning to speak two or more languages. The language of what our patients actually need, 
and the language of what companies need to hear in order to justify the treatment. And the companies get their information from psychological researchers that have given them reason to believe over several decades that manualized therapies, techniques that follow a strict course of intervention and adhere to rigid guidelines, those are the therapies that produce the most success. And success, and their framework, is defined as symptom relief. Manualized therapies, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, have taken on the label of quote-unquote evidence-based therapies. While this label has excluded what we call psychodynamic approaches, such as psychoanalysis and all of its descendants. It all seems well and good, doesn't it? The scientific method, which as intellectuals many of us believe in, tells us that these manualized therapies lead to mental health success, and that therapies that are individualized are less effective. Well, that's where Jonathan Shedler comes in. Dr. Shedler is both a therapy guy and a researcher. He's a data guy and a guy who does it day in and day out. As an inhabitant of both worlds, his work deconstructs the evidence that is the basis for manualized therapies, while also providing an empirical basis for other forms of treatment. His 2010 article, The Efficacy of Psychodynamic Psychotherapy, was a game-changer, and called out many flaws in how the academic psychologists research treatment modalities. He is a dedicated apologist for psychodynamic therapy, and since that paper, has committed to presenting the facts to the public in new and accessible ways. In a lot of ways, Dr. Shedler is like the boy in that Hans Christian Andersen tale, The Emperor's New Clothes, the boy who cried out that the emperor wore no new clothes. He was nice enough to speak with me from his home in San Francisco. I think of you as a, a bit of a jack of several trades. What would you say it is that people know you for in the field? Well, I'm best known for putting psychodynamic therapies on the map as an evidence-based therapy. Mm-hmm. I wrote a paper in 2010 called The Efficacy of Psychodynamic Therapy that was published in American Psychologist, which is the flagship journal of the American Psychological Association. And it was really a turning point in the field. A lot of people in academic psychology had written off psychodynamic therapies and how debunked or passe. I read somewhere else where you referred to this paper as the last academic paper. So to the extent that I'm uh, you know, a jack of multiple trades, I'm, I'm one of really a very small number of, of psychologists in the country who are real clinical practitioners. I have a practice. I've treated patients. I've treated patients from the very beginning of my career, but I've also been an academic researcher. So I devoted most of my career to you know, conducting 
studies, experiments, and publishing results in peer-reviewed empirical journals. And I kind of swore it off. It's incredibly thankless work. <laughs> and <laughs> it doesn't really seem to change anybody's mind or anybody's practice approach. And with my paper, The Efficacy of Psychodynamic Psychotherapy, turned out to be the exception that proves, proves the rule. But most of these academic journal articles are read by you know, maybe eight people in the entire world. <laughs> so, yeah, at the point when I took on what I still refer to as the last academic paper, I, I had pretty much sworn that off. And has that stayed true? I mean, I know that you publish you publish for the people now. Yeah, I publish for uh, other clinicians and for the educated lay public. And I think I get a lot more mileage out of, you know, out of speaking them to, to them directly than out of trying to fit myself into the Procrustean bed of, you know, the form of a research paper, which really has no impact on anybody except a handful of other researchers who happen to be working in, you know, your exact circumscribed area. There's a there's a bit of disdain in how you talk about the f- terms that come to mind are evidence-based therapies, academic psychology. And there's, there's a duality to that, of course, as well, because you're known for providing an evidence basis for psychodynamic psychotherapy. What is the problem with the phrase as it also represents how we think about so-called evidence-based therapy? Well, because the people promoting so-called evidence-based therapy have pulled a fast one on us. <laughs> Clinical practitioners who are not themselves immersed in the research world and the public and policymakers hears the term evidence-based, and they understand that to mean that the therapy has been proven to work. If I get this therapy, I'll get better. And the term has a, a certain marketing cachet. So what you probably don't know about me is I also have a, <laughs> a jack of another trade <laughs> in a separate life from my you know, psychology persona. I'm a ski instructor in Vail, Colorado, and I'm into ski gear and ski tech. And a couple of years ago, I walked into the ski shop and there was this huge banner on the wall advertising a you know, particular ski apparel line. And it said evidence-based apparel, right? <laughs> so the thing is the term acquires a certain marketing cachet. It becomes a kind of a buzzword and then it's valuable in its own right. Well, it just attach this word to anything and it gives it a sort of a stamp of legitimacy that might not be earned. Mm-hmm. So, you know, part of it is the term evidence-based does not have a clear scientific meaning, right? And people think it means that the therapies have been proven and will work for them. And, you know, the sleight of hand is that the people promoting these therapies, they've actually smuggled a whole bunch of other assumptions in with them under the rubric of evidence-based. And people don't appreciate this. There's some very specific requirements about, you know, when it's okay to talk about a therapy as evidence-based. And the requirements are that the therapist, the therapies are almost exclusively very short-term, time-limited. So typically, you know, eight to 12 sessions, right? So that has nothing to do with whether the therapy works or not. That's a starting assumption made by researchers, not based on findings, not based on our patients getting what they need out of therapy in eight to 12 sessions. It's a premise. It's a starting assumption. We decide up front that the therapy must be done within eight to 12 or 16 sessions at the very most. Mm-hmm. And the second assumption we smuggle in is the therapy must be done by an instruction manual. It's called manualized therapy. It's just literally a manual and you follow it. In session one, you do this. In session two, you do that. So the entire treatment is really a protocol that's outlined in advance before the patient has even walked in the door. And the third assumption smuggled in is that the purpose of psychotherapy is to manage symptoms or address the symptoms of a specific DSM diagnosis, right? So those are three assumptions. It has nothing to do with 
any evidence about how effective the therapy is, right, before we even start, we're defining the purpose of psychotherapy as being about a DSM diagnosis, not about the person, about the disorder. Mm-hmm. We're saying upfront that the treatment must be conducted by instruction manual, and we're saying upfront that the treatment must be very brief, eight to 12 sessions. So people hear the word evidence-based therapy and they think it works. And actually what it really means is that the therapy, you know, fits all of these starting assumptions before anyone has even gotten in the business of trying to find out whether it's helpful for patients or not. So that's part of the answer, right? We're hmm. we're being we're being bamboozled. We're told the word evidence-based. We think it means one thing, that it works. Hmm. And in fact, it means that it's therapy is conducted according to a very, very specific ideology and a a, a very specific set of assumptions that in fact don't match what most clinicians in the world are doing and with what most patients or clients want from therapy. The other thing is when you look carefully at the actual research, even within these assumptions, right, that don't fit what real people want from therapy, even if we assume that the purpose of therapy is alleviating symptoms of a specific disorder, in fact, the therapies don't help most people most of the time. Most people don't improve in the therapies or improve temporarily and then relapse. So to me, it's also problematic when we say a therapy is evidence-based and the facts are, the hard facts are that most people, most of the time who get these treatments actually don't get well. The American Psychological Association came out fairly recently with clinical practice guidelines for PTSD. You know, they're promoting these therapies as, you know, proven, tested, the gold standard of care, evidence-based therapies, but they're all very, very brief therapies conducted by following an instruction manual, right? And then if you look at the actual outcomes, it turns out that two out of three people who get these therapies and complete these therapies still have PTSD when they're done. So you ask me if, you know, I, I sound disdainful. I think the public and policymakers are being sold a bill of goods. I, mean, I, I don't want to sound overly dramatic about it, but I mean, there's a way that there's a massive fraud being perpetrated on, you know, on the public because your health insurance pick up on this information and they say, oh, well, these are the proven evidence-based therapies. We're going to offer only those to our patients. We're going to steer our patients to those therapies. But what it actually means is steering people to very brief and cheap therapies that offer temporary help or no help at all, right? And we're selling them to people as if these are proven and the gold standard of care. The one out of three patients who reports a positive outcome for PTSD treatment, I always wonder, how did they remove the relationship from that study? You mean the relationship between the therapist and the patient? Sure, yeah. If it's a manualized therapy, there's still a relationship. See, we, there's these two parallel universes going on. Yeah. One universe is reality. <laughs> what are real live patients in the real world dealing with in real therapy with real world clinicians. Mm -hmm. And then there's this parallel universe that goes on in the academic research world where we make a bunch of assumptions that are very artificial. They select patients with one specific DSM-5 diagnosis and the study's exclusion criteria typically eliminate people who have other diagnoses or certain combinations of other diagnoses. Mm -hmm. So we're cherry picking an artificial sample of patients because the fact of the matter is in the real world, there's no such thing as just PTSD. When people come to treatment with PTSD, what you see is PTSD and depression. 
PTSD and troubled relationships, PTSD and substance disorder, PTSD and an anxiety disorder, right? We have complex people with complex problems. And the first thing the researchers do is they say, well, we're not considering any of that. Our, our measure is reduction in PTSD symptoms and nothing else. Well, that's not typically why people come to therapy. And that's not how real therapists in the real world versus research studies understand the therapy process. So we already start with this artificial assumption. The time in my life I would have most needed these words was when I was working in community mental health. In my first paying job, I worked in a clinic that took on patients whose probation required them to get counseling. These were folks with complex problems who were in complex situations. Not only were they not coming to treatment to get symptom relief, they weren't choosing to come to therapy at all. That presents its own issue. But what all of us clinicians knew in that job was that whether or not our patients were choosing to be there, they were hurting and highly traumatized, often with depression, relationship issues, and some sort of addiction. That was an overwhelming job for me and I was new to counseling. So I fell back on my most basic skills, which involved listening. And it seemed, at least, to help many of my patients. But I always needed to justify what I was doing in so-called evidence-based language. I needed to list my techniques. There were treatment plans that required me to do so, and I had to update them regularly. In saying that I was using my own feelings and reactions to the patient to offer insight to them that might lead to change in their patterns was not an acceptable answer. You couldn't say that the goals of the treatment were, as Dr. Shedler will say later on, to live more congruent lives. Like many clinicians, I fell back on stock answers. I would often write down the phrase, motivational interviewing which is a technique. I rarely used it, but it was something that would satisfy the top brass. The paperwork required me to understand my techniques more than it required me to understand my patients. Dr. Shedler on this. And we have another artificial assumption, which is the techniques and the methods of a particular therapy brand are where the action is. And, you know, we can ignore everything else. We can ignore who the patient is, and we can ignore the complexity of the individual patient. Mm -hmm. We can ignore the skill and expertise and experience of the clinician. We can ignore the quality of the relationship that develops between them. We're going to only study the impact of these specific interventions and pretend that we can isolate that from all of these other factors, which we can't. We're trying to shoehorn psychotherapy into research methods that were actually designed for entirely different purposes, and they don't fit the subject matter that we're studying. Right. Right. That seems to be exacerbated by the movement that's happened in modern times to move psychotherapy into the medical realm. It's a t an attempt to carve people up into disorders and say, for example, that your depression is, you know, like influenza or diabetes. You know, you have this condition mm -hmm. and we can somehow understand and treat the condition independent of the person who has it, mm -hmm. which is very opposite to, I think, how most expert clinicians think, and absolutely opposite to how we think about things psychodynamically, right, that depression is an effect, not a cause. Like the reason that people become depressed 
has to do with who they are and how they live their lives, how they function in relationships, mm-hmm. how they relate to other people, how they relate to themselves, the, the lenses through which they perceive themselves in the world, their coping strategies, the way they defend. Depression is an effect of something else that's wrong. You know, we can't treat the depression per se. Depression is a symptom of something. What we do is we try to understand what's the vulnerability, what's going on psychologically that's giving rise to the depression, and we treat that. So, you know, already there's a a sort of an assumption of a medical model that really doesn't fit, that everybody with depression has the same condition, that you can look at it in isolation from the person who has depression and how they're living their lives, I mean, you really can't. I think the research data actually support what I'm saying, right? That's why the numbers for depression are seven out of 10 people who get these brief so-called evidence-based treatments for depression either don't improve at all or improve somewhat and then relapse very quickly after the end of therapy. That's what happens, I think, when you target symptoms rather than the underlying psychology that's giving rise to the symptoms. What I say to clients when they come to my office and they want to know how your therapy may be different than someone else, I refer to the symptom relief aspect. I say, if you want to quit smoking, then I'm probably not the best therapist for you. But if you're interested in characterological change, that's something I'm interested in working yeah, on. Yeah, I wouldn't use the word characterological change, though, with a patient or a client, because that's, you know, that's a therapist word. That's very theoretical and jargony. This is a theme for Dr. Shedler. He commented on my use of the word characterological. And later on, he'll present a video by comedian John Cleese that is an explanation of projection, and it is jargon-free. Recently, on his Twitter account, he lamented on the use of the word privilege in one of his professional listservs. He doesn't like jargon, and he doesn't like buzzwords. On his website, jonathanshudler.com, he provides a paper called That Was Then, This Is Now, Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy for the Rest of Us. It's a jargon-free and sometimes jargon-explained description of psychodynamic therapy, its history, and how it works. For example, in one section, he describes the concept of transference. He says, The term transference refers specifically to the activation of pre-existing expectations, templates, scripts, fears, and desires in the context of the therapy relationship, with the patient viewing the therapist through the lenses of early important relationships. In psychoanalytic psychotherapy, our patient's perceptions of us are not incidental to treatment and they are not interferences or distractions from the work. They are the heart of therapy. More from Dr. Shedler. Talking to a patient in experienced neurolanguage and say, it seems like there's something about the way you've been going about your life or whatever they've told me, the way you relate to people. You know, there's something about who you are that's causing difficulties. And the kind of therapy that I practice is aimed at understanding something about who you are so that you have the freedom to be able to do things differently in you know ways that are less costly for you. One of the things that you seem to have in common with our goal for the show is to bring psychotherapy to people. What is the usefulness of helping the general public and p- patients and potential patients understand how it is what we do? It's, it's really important for patients and therapists both to understand 
what they're doing in therapy and what's in it for the patient. We don't do therapy for the sake of doing therapy. We do therapy because it's supposed to help make things better for the person in some way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at the, the simplest level of explanation, by virtue of being human, we tend to recreate and live out certain patterns in our lives. It's not inherently pathological, it just is, right? That's how humans are constructed. We all develop certain patterns, certain templates of how we relate to other people and the world. And we develop these patterns through our earliest our earliest attachments, you know, typically our, our relationships in our family with mother, father, siblings, so on. Right? And for better or worse, we end up playing out these patterns, these, these templates for the rest of our lives. And in some cases, for some people, you know, those patterns work pretty well. And, you know, they're able to live successful, happy, fulfilled lives. For other people, those patterns get them into considerable difficulty. Right? So the goal of this kind of work is to recognize and understand and rework patterns that the person lives out so that they don't have to keep doing things in the same painful and self-defeating ways. And so they have the freedom to live differently. That's, you know, in a nutshell, that's the goal. It seems like the the evidence-based side of things to me feels quite jaded about the potential of the relationship. Well, to me, it's part of the problem, right? People come in because they feel fragmented and disjointed and ideally, you know, an ideally an outcome of therapy. One is to be able to live life more freely, to free ourselves from having to repeat self-defeating patterns. The other goal is to feel more whole inside, to feel more congruent, right? to live in a way that's congruent. The enemy of that is when you carve up and fragment people's lives and experience and put them in different compartments right, that don't fit together. So when people come into therapy and say, we're going to carve out your PTSD symptoms or your depressive symptoms, and that's the focus of the treatment. And I'm really not interested in hearing about you and your history and your internal experience and what led you here, right? I'm going to help you change your thoughts and behaviors so that you don't keep having these symptoms. If the lens that we're looking through is, is there symptom improvement, right? Then maybe that approach to therapy is helpful. If the lens that we're looking through is, how freely is this person able to live their lives and tackle new challenges and engage in the world? And how congruent and whole do they feel in doing that? If we look through those lenses, maybe this approach that divides and compartmentalizes the person into these sort of modular symptom areas and diagnostic categories maybe is part of the problem, not the solution. How did you end up on this path? Uh, I was fortunate enough. I went to graduate school where I was really exposed to master clinicians who are doing deep work, addressing who our patients are as, as people, as whole people. We all were in therapy or psychoanalysis ourselves. So we were all getting this kind of therapy for ourselves. The people who graduated in my cohort really had an understanding of what therapy can accomplish and how master clinicians think and approach approach the work. And what's happened over the past like 25 years or so, there's been a kind of a revolution and a coup within the field of psychology. Right? Because once upon a time it was recognized that becoming a master clinician is a lifetime, you know, a lifetime endeavor, a lifetime of work and study and practice. You never stop learning. It is 
a seriously complex skill that takes serious work and time and commitment to develop. And what's happened over the last 25 years, the coup has been that academic researchers who by and large have very little clinical experience, very little clinical practice experience, or none at all, have sort of taken over and are presenting themselves both to other psychologists and to public and to policymakers as the experts on therapy. That's the coup, right? So we're no longer rec publicly recognizing the expertise of you know, a seasoned and experienced clinical practitioner, right? We have a bunch of academic researchers speaking on behalf of the field and representing themselves as experts on psychotherapy. And what the public and policymakers don't know is that in, so we have a real bifurcation in psychology, right? There's, there's really two different professions going by the same name. Some people are trained to be psychotherapists, clinical practitioners. Some people are trained exclusively to be academic researchers. They never treat a patient in their lives. People mistakenly think that psychologists who are doing research on psychotherapy and making public pronouncements about how to do psychotherapy and you know, what's the gold standard of psychotherapy, people assume that they actually have expertise in psychotherapy. And actually, as a group, they don't. There's no time, there's no room in an you know, academic tenure-track position to advance through the academic ranks and you know, establish a, uh, an academic research career and simultaneously be devoting meaningful time to to clinical practice to treating patients you just you know you just can't do it anymore where do you see that going in the future well i know where it's all already going which is that at a societal level we're really eroding psychotherapy skills a, a lot of clinical understanding and insight hard won understanding that's been passed down and you know accrued over generations of, of clinical experience right, is being lost and is being replaced by instruction books they call them treatment manuals but they're you know they're instruction books written by academic researchers who really have no connection to you know to the the clinical traditions and the knowledge passed down from generations to generations so you know we're we're, we're losing it sure one of the things that your article did uh, back in 2010 was to provide some sense of this is not just a chaotic Voyage. This is not just us feeling around in the dark. Right. So the article was kind of in three parts. You know, mm -hmm. Part one is before we start arguing with one another about whether psychodynamic therapies are effective, we really ought to define what they are. And there were seven defining principles or distinctive features that you can actually observe empirically about what goes on in the room in psychodynamic therapy that distinguishes it from other forms of therapy, especially CBT. There's seven principles. These are the things that we do in the room. It's not random. It's not completely unstructured. It's not just two people you know, aimlessly talking. There are seven very distinctive principles involved. Next, the second part of the article is once we define what is it that makes the therapy a psychodynamic therapy, what is the evidence that the therapies are beneficial. And that was the bulk of my paper. The, there's tremendous amount of evidence that people have meaningful and lasting benefits from this kind of therapy. And then the third part of the article was to take a deep dive into what actually goes on in other kinds of therapies when other forms of therapy are effective, like CBT, for instance. It looks like 
a lot of the reason they're effective is because the therapist is doing things that are consistent with a psychodynamic approach, whether they call it that or not, whether they recognize it or not, right? They're actually departing from their treatment manuals because one way or another, they have figured out how to be effective clinicians. The action in these other therapies is not what's in the manual. It's all of the things that go on literally between the lines and between the pages of the manual that the therapist is bringing with them into the therapy situation. What would you say when someone is looking for a therapist is the most important thing for them to think about? Well, first of all, in the United States, or at least in most states, the word therapist doesn't actually have a legal or professional meaning. So you know, the first thing I would think about is make sure you're finding somebody who is qualified and educated and licensed to practice mm -hmm. because the word therapist by itself doesn't actually tell you anything about their background and training. You know, once you've established that as a bare minimum, you know, my criterion is that the person should have a session. The therapist is able to help them understand something in a way that they hadn't understood it before, in a way, maybe in a way they haven't thought about it before. Right? When they come out of the session, they're thinking about something in a new way and in a way that actually makes a difference in their lives. Yeah. Now, that's a pretty high bar, right? That's not going to necessarily happen in, you know, all in one session. Although ideally, you know, somebody would come out of a session with, huh, I never thought about this. Here's something I hadn't considered, right? They should, right, they should come out of the session being curious and reflective about something in, in a different way than before. Right? So that should be the trajectory of the sessions in the early stages. So I would say, you know, what are we looking for in a therapist? You know, make sure they're qualified and licensed. The second is, are they interested in me as a person? Do they seem primarily interested in, in my diagnosis? Are they primarily interested in historical events? Or are they inter interested in understanding who I am here and now, and how I got to be where I am here and now, and how I'm hoping that things could change as a result of the therapy relationship, right? So the therapist should be curious about you as a person, as a human mm. being, and curious in a way that lets the therapist make some connections that are new and different and meaningful to you. One of the things that you come back to is just listening to people in a room Paying attention. Well, <laughs> that's an important skill. It doesn't sound like a skill. We, we listen all the time. It's like, no, actually, we don't listen all the time. There's a very, very special way that we listen as, as therapists. We're not just listening to the surface content of what the person says. We're listening to the underlying meanings. We're listening to how the thoughts and the feelings and the experiences fit together or don't fit together. We're listening for connections between the difficulties that brought the person to therapy mm -hmm. and you know, how they go about telling their story and talking to us. It's a very active kind of listening. And most therapists, younger therapists, they are just, you know, their their heads are so filled with things they're supposed to do. You know, there's protocols and procedures and information they're supposed to get and diagnostic assessments. And they're so busy doing things in the session that they actually haven't developed the skill of how to listen. I was teaching in a psychiatry program, and we had things set up so that the psychiatry residents, or psychiatrists in training, could meet with their patients, and the attending doctors, which was me, could watch on, on videotape and give them feedback. Mm -hmm. So I watched an interview with a psychiatrist and a medical student interviewing a patient who was actively suicidal. And what I saw in the interview was you know, the, the psychiatry resident and the medical student were just 
peppering this person with questions. So one question after another, after another. And the patient was being very cooperative and answering them all fully and completely. And then they paused with the patient, came to talk to me. And I said, so what is it that intensifies this person's wish to kill themselves? What is it that pushes them further toward the edge of suicide? And they looked at each other and they had no idea. And I said, what is it that keeps this person alive? Why haven't they done it yet? Why haven't they acted on these feelings? What is it that they have to live for when they start feeling suicidal? What is it that counteracts that impulse? Right? Because those are the two important questions you really need to know, right? (laughs) What further endangers them? And what is it that helps keep them safe? And again, they looked at each other and neither of them had any idea of the answer to that, those pretty basic questions. And I said, do you know, you just spent an hour with this person. Do you know why you don't know the answer to those questions? And they didn't. And I said, because you asked so many questions that the patient could barely get a word in edgewise to tell their story, mm-hmm. their experience of what's going on. Right? We never got to hear the, the person's narrative, right? Because we're not listening. We're so busy asking questions. We're not hearing. Yeah. You have kind of a contrarian voice, and I think it's like righteous indignation. <laughs> Could you have predicted this would be the role that you play? No. No? <laughs> Not a chance. But one of the things that was unusual about my background is normally psychologists choose a, a path very early on, before graduate school. Mm. Uh, they're going to go to a research-oriented program and, you know, and, and trained to be academics and researchers, or they're going to go to a practice-oriented program. I went to one of the very few departments where there was a clinical program and research programs side by side. You were in one or the other. Nobody else tried to do them both. Well, I, I tried to do them both. Mm-hmm. I did do them both. So, you know, actually from the very beginning, I had one foot in the research camp and one foot in the clinical camp, which is a very interesting position to be in because it, you can't really drink the Kool-Aid. You know? mm, right. I think you could sort of immerse yourself into one camp but you still have this perspective from the other camp. It was like, like, wait a minute, we're, we're studying therapy and we're doing it in randomized control trials, research trials, and this is our outcome measure. It's, you know, our outcome measure is a questionnaire. Wait a minute, but I'm going to put on my clinical hat for a moment, mm-hmm. not my research hat. This questionnaire doesn't really tap into the things that therapists and patients are actually working on in therapy. So we've got a mismatch between the subject and the methods that we're using to study. And I mean, I have, I have the same experience on both sides. There's a lot of things we do as researchers that don't make sense clinically. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that, you know, that I've seen that, you know, I was trained in doing and other people do that we do clinically. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't do harm to bring to bear some, you know, some hard-nosed critical scientific thinking about what we're doing and why, because we tend to do a lot of things in the clinical world because that's how our teachers and our therapists did it, which is not necessarily a good reason. Does psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic therapy um, have a way of addressing what happens in our communities and in the news? Yeah, I mean, it has quite a lot to say about it. This is going to sound funny, but I'm going to, I'm going to suggest to your listeners, there's a, a brilliant uh, video clip on the web that you can find. It's John Cleese of mm-hmm. Monty Python fame. Mm-hmm. So it turns out I didn't know this about him before I saw the clip. He's worked very closely with psychoanalysts in London. He's actually co-authored several books about psychology or self-help books hmm. that 
you know, come from a very psychoanalytic place. Seriously, though, we've heard a lot about extremism recently, a nastier, harsher atmosphere everywhere, more abuse and bother boy behavior, less friendliness and tolerance and respect for opponents. All right, but what we never hear about extremism is its advantages. Well, the biggest advantage of extremism is that it makes you feel good because it provides you with enemies. Let me explain. The great thing about having enemies is that you can pretend that all the badness in the whole world is in your enemies and all the goodness in the whole world is in you. Attractive, isn't it? So, if you have a lot of anger and resentment in you anyway, and you therefore enjoy abusing people, then you can pretend that you're only doing it because these enemies of yours are such very bad persons. And that if it wasn't for them, you'd actually be good-natured and courteous and rational all the time. But he talks about how easy it is to, you know, see all the badness in somebody else. And it's really a defense. It's, it's projection. There are things we don't like in ourselves. We don't see it in ourselves. We project it onto another group, hmm. right? Now they become the repository of everything that's bad and hateful, right? So that we can condemn and reject them. But the other group is doing the same thing <laughs> in relation to us. He gives a, a beautiful, elegant description of the second analytic concepts of projection and projective identification and how they lead to polarization and, and hate and enmity. He doesn't use one single word of psychological jargon. He just explains it, you know, directly and clearly. I mean, it's about not wanting to grapple with the complexity and the nuance. I mean, you know, in, in the world, people don't fall into black and white categories. There's good people and there's bad people. It, it, like people exist in shades of gray and, you know, and nuance. And we're, we're a complicated mix of admirable qualities and strengths and, you know, <laughs> horrible qualities and weaknesses and limitation. It's all mixed together. And people are usually of you know, many minds about even one thing, you know, things in the human world occur in shades of gray. And when people start thinking about themselves and others in, not in shades, but in categories of black and white, it tells us that there's already a breakdown in our ability to reckon with psychological and emotional complexity. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing a sort of a, a psychologically costly way of functioning you now amplified in the larger society. Mm -hmm. Do your patients come? these days anxious about what they see in the news? Everybody's anxious about what they see in the news, but it's not the primary reason they come to therapy. I've experienced that more than ever. It's not every, obviously it's not a lot of people, but I have experienced people who have come to therapy in the last few months. They're very anxious about coronavirus. Yeah, but, but, but let me put an idea out there. So, yeah. I mean, if that's, if that is the full explanation, it's not a psychological problem that is suitable for psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. right? the, the goal of psychotherapy is to address something that's psychological, something about the person, something that can change. Now you're telling me people are anxious and fearful because there are frightening things going on. They should be anxious. Well, it's uncomfortable. It's, it's anxiety provoking. It's not a fun way to be, but it's not necessarily a psychotherapy problem.
Of course, I think what I, where I go with that is that they're anxious about something that they can't see and the virus is not just the virus, right? But that's where it starts for them. That brings us exactly, that brings us back to the shades of gray because all of us, by virtue of being human, we experience the present through the lenses of our mm. past experience. And past, present and past are, are woven together in incredibly layered and, and, and complex ways. So somebody might come and say, I'm anxious. I spend night and day thinking about coronavirus or I spend night and day thinking about Trump race in society or about President Trump or, you know, fill in the blank. I spend night and day thinking about blank. Well, the reality is if we ask them to kind of loosen up their thoughts and ask them, you know, what, what comes to mind about that? Where do your thoughts go from there? Say what occurs to you. Let's follow your thoughts where they lead without, you know, without prejudging whether it's important or relevant. Or speak openly and freely, which is the instructions that we give patients in psychodynamic therapy. And what we find is that the experience in the here and now is linked to all kinds of other experiences in their lives. So one thing I've learned about Dr. Shedler and our communications is that he is a purist when it comes to this work, and he has an intense work ethic. He always comes back to this idea that he is working towards a psychological change in the patient, and really not much other kind of change. But as I was realizing this, I kept noticing this talk of certain problems being suitable for psychotherapy and certain problems not being suitable for psychotherapy. I bristled a bit at this. So it's never my goal to get in a debate with a guest, and don't get me wrong if there ever was a guest who would shred me in a debate. It's this guest. But I emailed him to ask about this after our interview. I wrote, You mentioned a couple times in our interview the difference between a problem and a psychotherapy problem. What makes something uniquely a psychotherapy problem? The reason I see it as a follow-up to the John Cleese video is that he seems to be discussing polarization and projection as a universal human psychological behavior, which I agree with. But what we see happening in society on the news also involves actual violence and trauma, which I'm assuming you would consider a psychotherapy problem. But it also sounds like you might think that psychotherapy can't address the societal roots of these traumas. He responds, Psychotherapy addresses psychological problems. It aims to change something about the patient or client that is psychological. So for example, if someone has been unable to get or keep a job and their goal is having a job, that is not a psychological problem that is a focus for therapy. If the reason they can't get or keep a job is something about them, something going on inside of them, or something they are doing that is getting in their own way or causing them to mess things up, that is the psychological problem that can be a focus of therapy. Getting a job may be an outcome of therapy, but it is not the focus of therapy. The focus is understanding and changing what is going on psychologically that has been getting in the way. So suppose the person's psychology is such that once they have something, they no longer want it. So when they have a chance at getting a job they want, they lose interest. The psychological problem is what's going on that leads them to lose interest at those crucial junctures. The goal of therapy is to understand and work through that. Suppose when they get jobs, they interact with bosses or coworkers in ways that alienate them so people don't want to work with them, and they end up losing the job. In that case, the psychological problem is what is going on in their interpersonal interactions, 
and the goal of therapy is to understand and work through that. So getting a job is not a psychological problem that gives a focus to therapy. The things that are going on psychologically that get in the way of having a job are the focus of therapy. It's a crucial distinction. I responded, Can I add one more hypothetical? That same client is 70 and trying to get a job as a software engineer and suspects that there is ageism in the hiring process. Is there a psychological problem to work on? And he responds, I hope you will forgive me for answering a question with a question, but here it goes. If that is truly the extent of his difficulties and the explanation, why on God's green earth would he consult a psychotherapist? To this I said, I suppose in this hypothetical that ageism would not be the extent and the explanation for his problems, considering that a problem rarely has one cause. Although I can't imagine someone who seeks out therapy because of distress caused by the workplace discrimination. I guess my next question would be, in what capacity would the distress which the patient attributes to ageism be discussed in psychotherapy? But I realize at this point I'm getting close to your example of the teacher going back to school during the pandemic. Actually, recently I've gotten in this position with patients a lot hmm. where they're you know, really reacting to something know something that's really happening in the world like uh, one of my patients right now she's a teacher and she's being forced to go into the classroom by mm -hmm. her administration and she doesn't feel safe and she does have you know, medical risks right and she's really upset about it you know for good reason but in the course of talking about it you know, where we ended up was my basically saying you know there's really two things going on you know one is you're being put in an impossible situation right here and right now and of course you're upset about it and you're going to have to figure out what to do about it. And at the same time, there's something about this situation, you know, being coerced and do something that's, that's not good for you and that you don't want to do. There's something about this that's all too familiar. So that what we then do is get into the business of trying to disentangle what reaction is about the here and now, what reaction is about other things there and then, right? because the anxiety is fueled by both sources. Mm. <laughs> and if you don't deal with what's fueling the anxiety, it doesn't really leave the person anywhere to go. Back to your article that you're known for, the efficacy of psychodynamic psychotherapy. One of the values that you put forward that is in psychodynamic psychotherapy is a focus on the therapy relationship. What is a working alliance? Well, so, so first of all, everybody in the world agrees that they call the alliance or often say the therapeutic alliance, which really isn't the right word. You know, the alliance is important, meaning the quality of the relationship between the patient or the client and the therapist really is a very, very important contributor to outcome, far more so than the particular techniques or the brand of therapy, right? So the working alliance is important. The original term was working alliance, not therapeutic alliance. And I think the original term was actually the far more helpful term because it reminds us that it's an alliance around the work that we're there to do. Right? It doesn't just mean two people feel good about each other or like each other or feel a connection. It's much, much more specific than that. So a working alliance actually has three elements. The first is that there's a connection, right? The two people are invested enough in the relationship to want to continue meeting. Right? The second is that there's a shared agreement about the purpose of the therapy. What are we here to do? This isn't a social interaction, right? This isn't a leisure activity where when we do therapy, we're going to roll up our sleeves and go to work. But both people need to be clear on 
what the work is. What is the purpose of what we're doing? And the third element is that there's a shared agreement about the methods that we're going to use in pursuing these purposes, mm-hmm. right? So three things, connection, agreement about the purpose of the work, agreement about the methods of the work. One of the things I used to do before COVID is right. you to travel around the country and the world a fair amount doing clinical teaching, you know, for mental health professionals of all different backgrounds. And part of the workshops that I do, I usually have somebody present a, a case, like a patient or a client that they're working with, that they're struggling with for discussion, kind of like a master class, mm-hmm. a public live supervision. Basically, the understanding is bring me a case that you're struggling with and let me see if I can do something, offer something helpful to help you get back on track to help you not have to struggle so much. Mm -hmm. So people bring me their hard cases that they really are struggling with. And the overwhelming majority of the time, even if the therapist has been seeing the client or the patient for years, the overwhelming majority of the time, there is not a working alliance based on the three things that we talked about. Meaning there's usually a good relationship. There's a connection. The two people feel invested in the relationship. But there hasn't been an explicit conversation about getting the two people on the same page about the purpose of the work, which is a recipe mm. for you know, a stalemate. I think of that being of the very first question that I ask patients when they come in to do a consultation is why counseling now? It's a good question. Yeah, right. And we could think of a lot of ways to expand on that question. What brings you here? What's causing difficulties for you? How are you hoping that therapy can be of help? Help me understand the trajectory that brought you to where you are. And I'm going to cover all of those things in a, in a first initial interview. A shared understanding takes two. The patient offers you know, their take on what, what's wrong and what they're struggling with. But we're also listening clinically and developing our own case formulation about you know, what's our understanding of what's going on psychologically beneath the surface of things that may be giving rise to these difficulties. And now the, the patient and the therapist have to put their heads together, right? It becomes a topic for discussion. And, you know, the patient is depressed and we say something like, you know, I've noticed this and this. Perhaps that has something to do with why you end up feeling depressed, right? So we put out a, a hypothesis and now the patient gets to weigh in on it. And the patient may say something like, well, you know, I've never thought about it that way before. That makes a lot of sense. I do think that's you know, the issue. Or the patient might say, no, I don't really get that. That's not my experience. Then we circle back and we say, oh, you know, help me understand how you see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Correct me, revise me. So it's a kind of a dialectic process, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, until the two people ideally converge on this is where the bang for the buck is psychologically. This is where the action is. This is where we're going to get the most mileage out of focusing in therapy. And this is going to be our job together. This is going to be our focus. To me, this speaks to hierarchy and authority in the relationship as well. (laughs) This is actually touching on a pretty pretty profound issue. Most of the difficulties that bring people to therapy are ultimately rooted in relationships or play out in relationships. Show me somebody with a problem that's a, that's a psychotherapy problem, you know, and I'll show you someone that, that there's some way that the problem was developed, you know, was sort of forged in the context of relationships or is playing out in the context of current relationships or both. Right? So the issue is that people come in and they don't necessarily have an experience of I'd have a relationship that works for two people. 
they know what it's like to be in a relationship where they get done to, you know, they're, mm-hmm. they're acted upon by someone else. Maybe they know what it's like to be in a relationship where they're the ones, you know, doing the doing to somebody else. <laughs> Those people are less likely to find themselves in therapy. Yeah. <laughs> right. So the, the big therapy issue is people come in because there's difficulties in their relationships. They may not know how to create a relationship that works for two. And that's what we're trying to do in therapy. So some patients come in and they say, well, you're the doctor, you're the expert, you have the answers, you know, tell them to me. It's like, well, that's really not how it works. And I don't have the answers because I'm not an expert on what's going on in your mind, I'm not an expert in your experience. So for us to understand this and do some work around it, it takes two. This is work for two people. I had a supervision case just today, and the patient wants to dictate. I'll tell you how therapy goes and you know what I want and what I don't want from you. So basically putting the therapist in the role of a kind of a servant <laughs> to serve them. And you know, one way or another, the therapist needs to say, well, no, it doesn't really work that way. This has to be a relationship for two. Right? Mm-hmm. It has to work for both of us. And that means that I need to have the freedom to function as a therapist and be your therapist. I need to be able to be free to say what I think is important to say, just what you're telling me is okay for me to say. Uh, You say coming up with a relationship that works for two people, it feels like that one of the rewards of that process would be having more loving relationships in their everyday lives. Oh, it'd certainly be having a more intimate relationship, having a relationship that works for two people. And we hope that understanding and experience then spills over into their other relationships and leads to better relationships with other people. That's the process. We actually, we count on the patient to mess up the therapy relationship in the same ways that they're messing up their other relationships. We want them to do that, right? We want them to do it in therapy because when it happens in therapy, that's what makes it possible for us to recognize it as it's happening, understand it, and help the person to rework it so they don't have to keep repeating that same relationship pattern. Which requires us to be aware of our countertransference reactions to them when they do mess it up, if we have intense feelings to that pattern taking place. This is a basic premise of psychoanalytic therapy or psychodynamic therapy, and no two people see the therapist the same way, right? So some some people come in and you know they think the therapist is a wise, benevolent authority who's going to advise them and give them wisdom. Some people think that the therapist is you know an adversary and they need to protect themselves from them. And you know some people think that the therapist is a bumbling idiot, and some people are on a hair trigger to be angry. Right? This is all on the assumption that you know the therapist is basically in their role as therapist and and fairly consistent in that role across different patients the range of ways that our patients you know relate to us is as big as the number of patients that we see right so people right. come into the therapy relationship they recreate their relationship patterns and templates with the therapist in the therapy relationship that's transference therapist gets pulled in to these relationship patterns they end up living them with the patient and responding to them with the patient so it of course stirs up feelings in the therapist which is what we call countertransference and the work in the therapy right the transference and the countertransference interact and play out. And now all of a sudden, the patient finds themselves recreating the same kind of self-defeating and painful relationship pattern in therapy right, that they have with everybody else, you know, everybody else in all the other areas of their life. With the difference that in therapy, we don't just do it and live it out with yet another person. Right? In therapy, we pay attention to what we're doing and how we're doing it as we do it. 
right? We try to understand it, recognize it, talk about it, put words around it, right? So that the person can become increasingly aware of the lenses that they're bringing with them into relationships and how this, you know, how this alters their relationships or shapes their relationships for better or for worse. You know, you have a talent for what others um, have made very complex, taking that and making it jargon-free, making it accessible. There is a folk aspect to it um, that I identify with and that I want to emulate for my patients and my colleagues as well. All that to say, I appreciate the kind of deconstruction you've done around some of the systems that are present in our field. Well, thank you for that. It's deliberate, and I try very hard to express things, you know, in, in clear and straightforward ways. Because I don't think we do any ourselves any favors by, you know, mystifying what this work is about. And I think, mm. especially for psychodynamic therapy, we have this is a hundred plus year old tradition. We have a lot of old terminology, you know, that goes back generations and generations. And the terminology, I think, can become a barrier to mental health clinicians, you know, trainees and, and young professionals, like a barrier to, to sort of understanding what this work is about and how it's, you know, how it's immediately relevant to them and their patients or clients, you know, right here, right now. Dr. Shedler, thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. Our thanks to Dr. Jonathan Shedler for taking quite a bit of time to talk to us. You can find links to many of his publications at jonathanshedler.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at the handle at Jonathan Shedler. This has been Between Us. Between Us is produced by myself, John Totten, and Mason Neely. Mason also composes our music. You can keep up with us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We've also started posting content on YouTube. You can find conversations between Mason and I there with our free associations series. Find us where you find podcasts and please subscribe. And until next time, take care.